Killer Heart to Hearts contains explicit language and may discuss potentially triggering topics, including drug use and descriptions of violence and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Killer Heart to Hearts, where we bring you true crime cases in story form. I'm Elise Budell. And I am William Cannon. Welcome back, you guys. Thank you so much for choosing to spend some of your time with us here today. We promise to do our very best not to disappoint. And this week's episode is called The Lost Boys, and is actually part one of our two-part season four finale. We're going to be taking a good long look at a shocking spree killing that shattered the lives of six families in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, leading into the 4th of July holiday weekend, 2017. But before we get into all that, if you are a fan of true crime in story form, and you'd like to support the show, we hope that you'll at least consider giving us a like, rating, review, or a follow wherever you listen to us, or on any of the social media platforms. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, X, and TikTok for additional content, or you can visit our website, KillerHeartToHearts.com. So, Snoop Dogg quit weed. I saw that. Say it ain't so, Snoop. (laughs) It's the end of an era. But I feel like he's done this before, though, said that he's quit smoking weed. But he always comes back. Yeah, maybe uh, Martha Stewart had a nice sit-down with him and got him to give it up once and for all. You know, she's very convincing. (laughs) Now, I don't know about that. Um, I've seen interviews with the two of them where I would have sworn that they were both high. (laughs) (laughs) And plus, Martha Stewart also has some level of a personal relationship with Pete Davidson. So maybe Martha herself is a pothead. Could be. Maybe her next venture will be a marijuana line sold in Target. (laughs) Mary J by Martha Stewart. Put it in the cereal aisle. Do a little (laughs) cross promotion with the good folks over at Kellogg's. Now, I don't think we're quite there yet, but there have been great strides in recent years towards the decriminalization, if not the outright legalization of recreational cannabis use. And whether you call it pot, weed, grass, or the devil's lettuce, the cannabis plant, native to Central and South Asia, has been used by humans for centuries, both recreationally and as a traditional medicine. So why the bad reputation? Why has it so long been considered here in the U.S. to be an illicit substance, to be given the same negative stigma as cocaine and heroin? Many people believe that the real reason behind the prohibition of cannabis in America, has had less to do with the psychoactive effects of smoking the plant and more to do with its other industrial uses. Hemp is a subclass of the cannabis plant that is among the fastest-growing plants in the world and can be employed to produce a slew of useful products such as paper, rope, textiles, and clothing. The problem is that the allowance of the growth of the hemp plant for these manufacturing purposes would have encroached upon the production of similar products produced for ages by U.S. farmers and manufacturers using more traditional materials. 
like cotton, a huge industry here. So the U.S. has maintained a complete ban on even growing hemp, which doesn't have any psychoactive traits at all, and enforced a zero-policy approach up until 2018. Others still believe cannabis to be a gateway drug, not necessarily dangerous in and of itself, as there has never been a documented cannabis overdose death, ever. But the fear is that cannabis use will lead to the use of other, heavier drugs, as regular cannabis users inevitably, eventually, seek out a stronger high. Therefore, many people believe that cannabis deserves to be treated just the same as those other, heavier drugs. It's a slippery slope, they say. But even that line of thinking has relaxed in recent years, as the U.S. federal government has walked back some of this rhetoric and has largely left it up to individual states to decide cannabis's legality. States who, with increasing regularity, are deciding that cannabis ain't so bad after all. And it's not just here in America either. Legal weed has gone global. Even Thailand, long considered a hard pass for any kind of drug activity, and where Elise and I will be visiting in just a few short months, has legalized the recreational use of cannabis. We'll let you know how it goes. But all of this is not to say that the cannabis industry doesn't have its very real dangers, especially dealing in cannabis and in a state where it's not yet legal. States like Pennsylvania in 2017, where several young men lost their lives to cannabis over the course of three short days. Not by overdose, of course, but by murder. This is Killer Heart to Hearts. When Dean Finicaro was seven years old, his father bought him a dirt bike for Christmas. And from that point on, that was all he ever wanted to do. To be fair, there wasn't a whole hell of a lot else to do where Dean grew up. Langhorn Township, Bucks County, Pennsylvania, about 25 miles outside of Philadelphia. But what little there was to do, Dean made the most of. With his older by five years brother, Anthony, and his friends, Dean fit right in, playing hockey, riding dirt bikes, and jumping off the cliffs into Neshaminy Creek. Yes, Dean Finicaro was all boy. Adolescence is rarely just dirt bikes and daydreams, however, as Dean discovered soon after high school, when one of his best friends was tragically killed in a motorcycle accident. It was Dean's first experience with death, and it showed. He took it like a gut punch. It sent him into a bit of a tailspin, honestly. Began both using and selling drugs, which, predictably, led to more than enough run-ins with the law for Dean to develop a bit of a reputation as a bad boy. But even bad boys have feelings, and Dean sometimes found himself a little stuck in his battled depression, even checked himself into a psych hospital. 
But Dean was a fighter, and he never stopped fighting. And by the summer of 2017, the 19-year-old was working at Richmond's Ice Cream and Burger Company and appeared to have turned a corner, became a model employee, and for the first time in a long time, the future looked bright. A welcome turn of events for his parents, Anthony and Bonnie, who had been understandably concerned for their son and for his prospects in life. A life neither one of them knew was soon to be cut short well before its time. How could they have known? How could they have possibly known as they watched Dean get into that car at 6.30 on the evening of July 7th, 2017, that he would never come home again? He had been doing so well. As the hours went by with still no Dean, his parents called his cell phone, straight to voicemail. Growing concerned, they began calling Dean's friends, but no one had any idea where Dean was. Worried now, they next called police and filed a missing persons report. Nearly every single friend Dean had began showing up at the house and voluntarily providing statements to police. But what they didn't know yet was, Dean Finicaro wasn't the first young man to go missing in rural Bucks County that week. And he wouldn't be the last either. He would, however, eventually be the first to be found. 19-year-old Jimmy Tarot Patrick grew up living with his grandparents, Sharon and Rich Patrick, in Newtown, Pennsylvania, just four miles south of Langhorne, where Dean Finicaro lived. Even so, the two boys didn't know each other. Although she maintained some level of involvement in his life, Jimmy's mother struggled with schizophrenia and drug abuse from the time Jimmy was born, and his father was nowhere to be found. So living with his grandparents was the best scenario imaginable. Don't feel bad for him for that. They doted on Jimmy, as grandparents do, while at the same time providing him with a stable home where Jimmy flourished. He was a model student at Holy Ghost Preparatory School, where he was active in community service in addition to winning several awards for his academic achievements and playing on the school's baseball team. He was smart kind, handsome, and ambitious. The kind of kid who got the girl and won over her parents. After graduating high school in 2016, Jimmy was awarded a full scholarship to Loyola College in Maryland, where he studied business and made the dean's list. He was thriving and had goals and dreams of marriage, family, and community. He wanted to give back and be a positive influence on those less fortunate than he was. He went on missions to West Virginia and the Dominican Republic and wanted to be a catalyst for the kind of change he hoped to one day see in the world. He was just a good dude. Wow. I mean, talk about defying the odds and refusing to be a statistic. I mean, this kid sounds amazing. Yeah, this family dynamic was interesting to me. And kudos to the Patrick family, by the way, for recognizing that changes needed to be made and stepping in for the benefit of Jimmy. And a huge part of that had to have been maintaining some sort of relationship with his mother, you know, not turning their backs on her while at the same time looking out for what was best for Jimmy. 
that clearly set an amazing example of how a person should be as Jimmy grew up to be one of the best of us. Absolutely. Not much of a partier, Jimmy would come home to Newtown during the summer break from Loyola, working at local restaurants and never missing curfew. His grandparents never had to worry about him in that regard. Which is why, when he didn't come home on July 5th, 2017, two days before Dean Finnecaro went missing, they immediately knew something was wrong. Jimmy had told Sharon and Rich that he was going to meet up with some friends of his at the local Chick-fil-A and would come home in a couple of hours. But he never did. Just like Dean Finnecaro, the last Sharon and Rich Patrick saw of their grandson, Jimmy, was watching him climb into a friend's vehicle and drive away. Hours passed. Trying to give him the benefit of the doubt, he had always been so responsible. Sharon and Rich tempered their concern and texted Jimmy, asking where he was and when he would be home. 22 times they texted him. And when he didn't show up for his shift at the restaurant the next day, July 6th, 2017, Jimmy Tarot Patrick was reported missing. I mean, this is every parent or, in this case, guardian's worst nightmare. I mean, I can't imagine the sinking feeling that they must have had with each text message that they sent, just hoping for some response. Yeah, especially with a kid like Jimmy, someone who never does this stuff, never stays out late, never misses curfew. So when this happened, his poor family knew something was terribly wrong. Yeah, it's a family's instinct. I mean, 22 unresponded text messages would be beyond alarming in any situation. But he was 19, police said. He had probably just driven off somewhere with his girlfriend and would be home soon. But what police didn't understand, what Sharon and Rich needed them to know, was that Jimmy's car was still sitting in the driveway, and Jimmy's girlfriend hadn't heard from him either. Now interested, police pinged Jimmy's phone and traced it to Springfield, Pennsylvania, about 45 miles south of Newtown. Jimmy's grandfather, Rich, quickly made the drive down with pictures and flyers, hoping that if he asked enough people and handed out enough flyers, someone would recognize Jimmy. No one did. The next day, July 7th, 2017, Dean Finnecaro went missing. And he wasn't the only one. 21-year-old Thomas Mio was a mama's boy in the best possible sense of the term. That can happen when you grow up in a house full of girls raised by a single mother. Fair or not, young Tom was the man of the household, a role he embraced. And as he grew older, the sweet child who gave the best cuddles remained affectionate and protective of his mom, Melissa, and his two young sisters, Gabriella and Faith, always making time for them and prioritizing family. He looked out for them, all three of them. He and Melissa often had breakfast dates, and Tom was every bit the positive male role model his younger sisters needed. 
He was the only one who could ever get through to the sometimes petulant Gabriella, and she often confided in him during difficult times. And Tom graduated from Ben Salem High School, just five miles from where Dean Finnecaro was from, and eight miles from where Jimmy Patrick was from. And same as before, Tom didn't know either of them. After he graduated, Tom made the grown-up decision to go to college. Seemed like the logical next step for a young man looking to take care of his family. And he enrolled in East Stroudsburg University. But college isn't for everyone, and Tom wasn't sure it was for him. Better to realize these things sooner rather than later. So Tom didn't return for his sophomore year, as he evaluated his options and tried to envision what he wanted his future to look like. Tom came home and began working construction, initially as a gap filler, but he soon found that he enjoyed the work. He could see himself doing this long term. He also met a girl, Laura Lynn Ingresso, with whom he spent his free time. And one thing was for certain, whatever the future held for Tom Mio, his best friend, 22-year-old Mark Sturgis, would be riding shotgun for it. Tom Mio and Mark Sturgis were close, really close, so close, they often finished each other's sentences. I wouldn't say that they were polar opposites, but almost. Mark Sturgis was a shy, gentle giant, while Tom Mio was a ever-curious extrovert, but they were perfect foils. Their personalities balanced each other out. Although they were already close friends from Ben Salem High School, the bromance really blossomed after Tom took a job working for a construction company owned by Mark's dad, and they became inseparable. Mark was a big kid, always had been, but looks can be deceiving, and underneath the mountain of a man that was Mark Sturgis hid a soft underbelly. He was a peacemaker, and often sacrificed of himself in order to make other people happy. The kind of guy you want as your friend. As a child, Mark moved around a lot, so he grew adept at making new friends in new places, often walking up to complete strangers, extending a hand and saying, Hi, I'm Mark. There was an innocence about him. And as he grew into a man, his interests grew along with him. He loved playing guitar, paintball, and Jack Black, as well as philosophy. And he and Tom Mio often got into deep discussions about life, asking each other philosophically unanswerable questions. Mark spent the year after high school in Florida, living with his grandparents and playing guitar in a local band. And when he returned, there was a reinvigorated interest in his father's construction company and the projects they were working on. Mark dove headfirst into the work, sometimes working seven days a week. He wanted to be successful, to make money. Not for himself, of course. Mark Sturgis was probably the least materialistic 22-year-old that you'll ever meet. I mean, he wore the same basketball shorts and mismatched sandals practically every day. No, Mark told his father that he wanted to succeed so that he could help his mother and stepfather, who were struggling a bit at the time, fix up their home in Maryland. 
always in service of others. You are killing me with these character descriptions. I mean, these boys are young, intelligent, kind, compassionate, hardworking. And I'm just deeply disturbed because I know where the story is going. Otherwise, you wouldn't be telling it. And I'm just waiting for the other shoe to drop. Yep. All great kids with bright futures. They weren't without their flaws, but who is? You know, and not one of them certainly deserved any bit of what happened to them. On July 7th, 2017, the same day that Dean Finnecaro went missing from Langhorne, Pennsylvania, Mark Sturgis told his father that he was going to meet up with Tom Mio. It was about 6 p.m. He would never come home. After a long day on the construction site, working with Mark and Mark's dad, Tom Mio had returned home briefly and shared a bowl of ice cream with his little sister, Gabriella. And then, Tom told his mom that he was off to go meet back up with Mark, and they never saw him again. Alive, anyway. The next day, July 8th, Tom's girlfriend, Laura Lynn, called Tom's mother, Melissa, asking when Tom would be arriving at her place in Philly. Melissa was confused. She had assumed that Tom was already there. He certainly wasn't at home. Melissa's obvious next move was to call Mark's parents. Maybe Tom was there. But Mark's parents were just as confused and worried. They had hoped that Mark was at Tom's place. And when neither Mark nor Tom showed up for work later that day, both boys were reported missing too. That's four boys in three days. Where the fuck were they all disappearing to? For 20-year-old Sean Kratz, life had gotten shitty early. A 79 IQ in the mean streets of Northeast Philadelphia will do that to you. And in March of 2017, those streets caught Sean slipping. By then, he had already amassed a criminal history that included burglary, conspiracy, theft, receipt of stolen property, criminal trespassing, and criminal mischief. Mostly petty stuff in the grand scheme of things. But all that was about to change. Sean was investigated for his potential involvement in the attempted murder of a Philadelphia man that left the victim in a wheelchair permanently. Not only was Sean investigated but he was actually shot in retaliation. And not just once, but a total of 19 times. Leaving Sean walking with a noticeable limp, but alive, and his mother, Vanessa, scared for his life. The drive-by shooting, unsolved. Vanessa was so worried that she called Sandra DiNardo and asked if it would be all right if Sean started hanging out with Sandra's son, Cosmo DiNardo. The two were the same age and were related. Cosmo's father, Tony, and Vanessa were first cousins. But even so, Sean and Cosmo hadn't seen each other in years. Sandra DiNardo agreed with Vanessa. Jumped at the chance, actually. Turns out, Cosmo DiNardo hadn't had a much better go of it than Sean had as life had dealt Cosmo his very own set of tragic setbacks. Was having a hard time making friends, Sandra told Vanessa, and needed some, one at least, 
desperately. So Sean Kratz began making the trip out of the city and up to see his second cousin, Cosmo DiNardo, pretty regularly. Up where? Where Cosmo DiNardo lived. Bucks County, of course. 20-year-old Cosmo DiNardo was born into opulence. His parents, Tony and Sandra, had founded their own concrete and construction business, and it was wildly successful. They built more than 40 homes, both in Philly and the suburbs. They also built a dialysis clinic and a short-term residential center for troubled kids. The DiNardos were pillars of their community, having earned a reputation for being honest, hardworking business people. Each one of them knew how to drive trucks and operate heavy equipment like backhoes due to the family's construction business. And there were also numerous four-wheelers and other assorted ATVs that the kids grew up riding on their 90-acre farm in Bucks County, where they also camped, hunted, and generally lived out every rural kid's fantasy life. Cosmo was the eldest of four good-looking kids with the world at his fingertips. He was a gifted student-athlete who excelled on the football field. His football career, however, was cut short following several concussions and a neck injury. Boys will be boys. And even so, Cosmo maintained straight A's in school and remained a dependable, hard-working employee in the family business, going on to graduate from Holy Ghost Prep and winning a scholarship to Arcadia University with dreams of becoming an orthodontist. Then the shit hit the fan. In 2016, Cosmo had broken up with his girlfriend and was diagnosed with major depressive disorder. Didn't even complete the second semester of his freshman year. Then, in May of 2016, Cosmo was involved in a horrific ATV accident on the DiNardo family farm in Bucks County. He was pinned under the vehicle for hours and suffered compound leg fractures. And there were head injuries. Serious head injuries. And according to his mother, Sandra, Cosmo began acting bizarrely about a month after the accident. He stopped eating her cooking, accusing Sandra of trying to poison him. He also became physically aggressive. Sandra brought Cosmo to doctors who put him on antidepressants, antidepressants that led to Cosmo gaining over 100 pounds and man boobs to boot. Cosmo had always been athletic. His depression deepened. In July 2016, Sandra and Cosmo got into a fight in the car while she was driving him to voluntarily admit himself to Abington Memorial Hospital. Cosmo bit Sandra's arm severely and gave her a black eye before he limped out of the car on crutches and into traffic and tried to jump into the car of a terrified woman passing by, Cosmo proclaiming he was escaping a kidnapping. He wound up in the hospital anyway, in handcuffs. Cosmo told doctors that his mother was a Russian spy and that his leg cast from the ATV accident was bugged. And the doctors told Sandra that Cosmo was a paranoid schizophrenic. This was to be the first of three times that Cosmo DiNardo would be involuntarily committed for mental illness in a five-month period. And through it all, 
Cosmo became increasingly aggressive and dangerous. He threw a wheelchair at a female technician, struck a nurse several times, and had to be put in restraints. Once, he showed up at an open house at his former prep school, Holy Ghost, only to be removed and banned from campus for acting disorderly. Then, just one month later, he was banned from Arcadia University following verbal altercations there. He was on and off his meds, frequently hallucinating and hearing voices and suffering from delusions. In the summer of 2016, Cosmo warned his mother Sandra that he was under spiritual attack and he was hearing voices telling him to do something violent. In response, Sandra asked her parish priest to perform an exorcism. A fucking exorcism. With all of this turmoil enveloping him, it's no wonder that Cosmo DiNardo was having trouble making friends. Sandra ultimately sought help from at least 10 different psychiatrists and psychologists at eight different hospitals and mental health clinics, but nothing seemed to work. Not prayer, not meds, nothing. Maybe family would. That was the hope, anyway. That second cousins, Sean Kratz and Cosmo DiNardo, would somehow be positive influences on each other. But instead, together, they only made everything much, much worse. Because in case you haven't guessed by now, Cosmo DiNardo and Sean Kratz didn't disappear in July 2017 like the other lost boys of Bucks County. No, they were the ones doing all the disappearing for next time. To be continued. You know, it's interesting. Sean and Cosmo on the outside just seem like complete opposites. I mean, Sean, it seems, was a troublemaker from the start and not having the best foundation at home. Whereas Cosmo came from a life of luxury, it seemed. But mental illness does not discriminate. And it sounds like Cosmo was a walking time bomb, and Sean was the fuel to Cosmo's fire. Yeah, that's exactly what they were. Um, Although they were related, they led entirely different lives. Sean grew up underprivileged and in Philly, while Cosmo never wanted for anything. Yet, each one found their way to trouble. And for Sean, you know, clearly it was more a situational thing. Sean, I think, became a product of his environment. But Cosmo, the multiple concussions and head injuries resulted in the type of mental illness where his behavior changed fundamentally and completely. And Sean was a follower, you know, like a yes man, while Cosmo was a leader, a leader descending into madness, but a leader nonetheless. Yeah, you know, this case actually kind of reminds me of the first episode ever on this podcast that we did about Cassie Jo Stoddart and her friends Brian and Tori who murdered her. Now, when those boys got together, they fed each other's fantasies and became very dangerous as a duo. Now, I'm not sure, though, if either one of them would have actually gone through with the killing of Cassie if they didn't have the other one to cheer them on. You know, we haven't gotten to the heart of this story yet, but it just feels similar in that regard so far. 
there definitely are similarities, 100%. Um, but as we get into part two, you'll discover that Cosmo... No, Cosmo would have done this shit all by himself. All right, you guys, that concludes part one of The Lost Boys, the mysterious disappearance of four young men from rural Bucks County, Pennsylvania. We know that you have nothing but choices out here in podcast land, you guys, so we want to thank you so much for being here. And make sure to catch part two of the season four finale of Killer Heart to Hearts. Killer Heart to Hearts is produced, written, and hosted by Elise Budell and William Cannon and is engineered by Jordan Calhoun.